A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Red Rover edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, uh, here with my friend Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hey. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. Yeah. And uh, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, usually with us here, has escaped D.C. in advance of a potentially historic snowstorm. We're calling it potentially historic yes. is the new phrase being attached to this. Um, she's not in a snowy place. But no. Where's your she, wife? Well, she is. Uh, I, I just got a text from her that she was uh, going to what I think is the coolest named coffee shop in the world. It is in the Golan Heights overlooking the Syrian border with Israel, um, and it is called uh, Coffee Anon. And so this is a triple pun, actually, um, because um, Anon in Hebrew means cloud. And so this is the coffee shop in the clouds, but it's also where all the UN peacekeepers uh, go for, for coffee. So it's named Coffee Anon after Kofi Anon, but also Coffee in the Clouds. I feel like, okay, when I was in the Golan Heights about a year and a half ago, we went to this really cool coffee shop that had really good chocolate. And I don't remember if that was it. It, it, it probably might have was. been. There's not a ton of coffee Does it kind shops. of seem like it's kind of like a rest stop, like it has a big yes. parking lot, and it's like nice That's and has it. chocolate inside? That's it. Um, well, it doesn't have a big parking, but it, but it is overlooking right. a valley as you, um, and the, 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 the city, the Syrian city of Kunetra. Um, there, there can't be a lot of gourmet coffee shops in the Golan Heights, right? It's a good coffee shop, and it's pretty isolated. Oh, wait, it's, hold on. It's, it's sure, on the border. And anyway, Tammy sends her greetings from oh, to rational security viewer uh, listeners from Coffee Anon. Is this where it is? Is that it? I don't think I went there. I can't see it. I don't know. Um, this looks a little more like a like a lodge. Oh wait, maybe I did go here. I don't know. You know what? Maybe I did. It was a long time ago. I was anyway, on drugs. No, it's not. That's true. why Tammy's not here. Tammy's not here, but our good friend Susan Hennessy is here. Hello, I am Susan. indeed. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Managing editor of Lawfare has been a special guest many, many a time. Um, and you have been to this coffee shop. I'm looking at pictures of it now from the inside. I don't think I went to this one. I feel like I, were, I was cheated. You Next went to, week on Rational Security. You went to Coffee Utah. Shane Ben to this coffee shop. <laughs> yes or no? I'm pretty sure I or wasn't here. It's coffee a Boutros, Boutros <laughs> Golly. It's the other Secretary's General. I went to this off-brand UN Secretary General coffee shop. I was cheated. <clears throat> it was a little bit of an off-brand trip, too, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But, you know, it was fun. We had to, we had to see some things. Um, this week on the show, um, besides talking about coffee and bracing for blizzards, uh, it's been a busy week. Four Americans are freed in a prisoner swap with Iran. Red Rover, Red Rover, send our hostages over. Send our sanctions violators right over. Yeah, and, and send our people you haven't even indicted yet. That's true. Right over, yeah. That's right. Yeah, we love people who were just like in a... I think some of them elected to stay, actually. <laughs> Did they? What? Who the hell would go back to the Iran? Stick in the I mean, eye, I mean man. if you were... Well, I guess if you were... These people weren't necessarily like enemies of the state, but I think many of them had left a long time ago. I, you know, I mean, I might opt to just kind of take my chances with well, the U.S. justice. It's just, thanks, 
mullahs for getting me a pardon or a non-pros agreement, but I'm staying in Cleveland. But I'm staying. They, they did want them back, clearly. Well, maybe they didn't want them back. They wanted somebody back. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Twitter is facing a lawsuit over jihadist messages posted on the site. And Secretary of Defense Ash Carter is cracking down on everybody. It's discipline week at the Pentagon. Uh, let's start uh, with the four American prisoners. Uh, uh, I'll start with that as my wordplay. I was playing those words all weekend. Uh, we got word that uh, four Americans who had been held in Iran, uh, probably most well-known among them, Jason Rezaian, uh, the Washington Post reporter, but also uh, others, including a man named Amir Hekmati, who was hold lo- held the longest of Americans in Iran, uh, were freed uh, on Saturday. Um, this was uh, a something that we've learned had been in the works for quite some time. A separate track had developed... Uh, kind of an outgrowth of the nuclear negotiations. Um, and it became clear, administration officials said, that there was going to be some ability to get these prisoners out, but that it needed to be something separately conducted, conducted separately from the nuclear negotiations, which I have to admit I found a little hard to believe. Um, it was the same people involved in those discussions as in the nuclear negotiations, or at least a certain a number of them. Um, they kind of happened in a parallel track to the negotiations. Oh, and by the way, this prisoner swap just happened to coincide with the day of the implementation of the Iranian nuclear deal, the so-called implementation day, which, you know, we've been anticipating for six months. It not, it's not like it snuck up on you like a snowstorm. I, just, I mean, I, I'm, look, I think it's, you know, it's, the families are very happy. I think probably it's a small price to pay. That's my personal opinion for trading these seven people, some of whom we weren't even, we hadn't even prosecuted yet. Some of whom, I think all of whom, were charged or guilty, pled guilty to offenses that would no longer be illegal because the sanctions are being lifted. Um, I'd be curious to get your take on that, you guys. But to me, just saying that this was somehow totally separate and they just happened to coincide with each other with the nuclear deal just sort of strains credulity, I think. Look, I mean, there's a little bit of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge. Sure. Um, yeah. But I feel like it's kind of a nice, heartwarming, good news story, yeah. uh, you know, to capture the headlines on uh, Implementation Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of overshadowed Implementation Day, too. But, uh, funny how that worked right. out rather right. nicely for right. the administration. Yeah. Um, look, I, I have no doubt that um, the the wink-wink, nudge-nudge occurred during the negotiations sure. as well, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think that these were actively uh, put on the table at the same time. Certainly everybody understands right. that there's parallel negotiations going on. Um, I do think that this sort of underscores uh, what the administration has long uh, you know, been saying, which was uh, highlighting the need for the secrecy of the negotiations and not mm-hmm. releasing the plans and all of sort of the um, attendant details or side negotiations um, until everything was finalized. You mean the nuclear plan? Right. Yeah. Um, and so it just sort of, it, um, it underscores the kind of the sensitivities at play, the various moving pieces, and really the ability for any one person to kind of screw things up. Right. Because um, I mean, had this leaked out early, I mean, the administration seemed, and I think this is, this is, I think, plausible, that had the word of this leaked out too early that this was going on, it could scuttle the deal. But, but I think it's perfectly possible for the deal, for them to be separate tracks, not formally connected, and yet intricately connected at the same time. And here's how you do it. If you're Iran, you say, you don't say to the Americans this, but you say internally, uh, we're not letting these people go because the Americans care about it. 
uh, care about them until the moment that we know for sure that sanctions are really being lifted. Um, and so you have, as, uh, as you move toward implementation day, an increasingly viable separate track negotiation that's becoming more viable because the Iranians are gaining confidence that they're actually getting the ransom that these hostages are in fact being held for. And then, so once you're actually near implementation day, it's not a particularly difficult thing to say, okay, we're ready now to do, yeah. to do a, a, a Red Rover, Red Rover. You know, you guys send us our sanctions violators and we'll send you your, your, your journalists. And, um, and uh, so I think it's uh, actually perfectly consistent for they t them to be totally intricately interconnected and, in fact, dependent on one another, but at a formal negotiations level, separate tracks that are uh, essentially unrelated. Um, can I just say that the uh, desire on the part of a lot of Republicans to make this a bad thing um, is really weird. Um, prisoner exchanges, um, you know, several of the Republican presidential candidates and senior senators were on Sunday talk shows this week weekend complaining about this deal um, and saying that, you know, we're really happy these people are back with their families, but this shows the weakness of the administration. Uh, and I was found that bewildering because, you know, trading hostages and prisoners is a, including with regimes you really don't like, uh, and trading people you regard as innocent for people who you regard as guilty is as old as the day is long. Mm -hmm. um, and we did it over and over and over again with the Soviets um, and with other um uh, uh, Eastern Bloc regimes. We trade people that are of value to the other side to people who are of value to it's us. It's Bridge of Spies. As right? dramatized by a newly nominated Bridge of Spies. Right, although... although Different situation. Gary sure. Francis Powers was not... Was actually a spy. Was actually, yeah, yeah, flying a plane in violation of their sovereignty. He wasn't an innocent journalist. Right. But... Um, but we give up people of value um, who are actually guilty of things under our law for people who we regard as innocent, who are, you know, apparently guilty under somebody else's law of something that we don't think they should have been prosecuted for all the time. And I'm a little bit mystified by what Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and even responsible Republicans like Marco Rubio think they're complaining about in oh. this context. But I mean, I don't think that's mystifying at all. This is, that's just, just crass, brazen politics, right? If Obama did it, it's bad. And I'm not like a reflexive defender of the president, but I mean, I think this underscores the extent to which, you know, they can't be happy with, with anything that even results in the freedom for Americans who were, in our view, quite unjustly detained and prosecuted. Well, and, and they're just going to attack them for and it. And it's tied to the Iran nuclear deal, too, right? It's another chance to bash the nuclear deal. Right, and speaking of violations of sovereignty, for 10 U.S. sailors to float on into Iranian territorial waters mere hours uh, before this exchange was set, uh, I think that, that it's part of the Republican sort of, it's all part of the same narrative of no matter what the outcome, it's, it's a reflection of the fact that the administration did something yeah. wrong.
I mean, I think I think we all probably generally agree that as deals go, this seems like a decent one, right? It's not like we gave up and we didn't give up any terrorists. There is there is an Iranian currently serving time in U.S. prison for conspiracy uh, with Qasem Soleimani to uh, to kill the Saudi ambassador. Right. We didn't give. We didn't Milano. give him up. We didn't give him up. I mean, these are these are sanctions violators, and in some of their cases that, that I've looked into, you know, part of their defense was actually that the sanctions regime was so complicated they didn't know that they were actually violating it, and that they had actually in some cases retained attorneys to see if it was okay to sell some of the products that they were. Point being is these people would have mounted, you know, right. a, def- it's a, a defense. white collar crime. Yeah, exactly. These are not, you know, and these this is not, you know, and just just like revolutionary our, our guard peop- plants our, in America. Our people there were engaged in white collar crime too, journalism, <laughs> and uh, and you know, being a preacher, a religious person. Right. Um, Sorry. No, I think you're absolutely right. From, I mean, I did talk, interestingly, I was talking to one U.S. official over the weekend who said something I thought was notable, uh, which was, you know, look, you may not like it, but they were convicted according to due process in their country. And this person wasn't saying this to justify it, but simply saying a process took hold of these people, and therefore you were going to have to resolve it outside of this. You know, you may not like it, but there was going to have to be right, some resolution. Right, we aren't sending a SEAL team to kick exactly. down the door exactly. of an Iranian prison. This is... Right. Yet. <laughs> yes. And that's we, next week. And one other important thing to know... Actually, that's what those boats were. Oh, yeah. Those were the SEAL teams. Exactly. That had were, they. Some, some they had not had mechanical it's all problems. all coming together. Some tells me yeah. the elite of the U.S. Navy were not on board those two boats. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that controversial idea out there. Um, a couple of just like weird things you should mention about this, though. There was there were four Americans, uh, uh, Sayyid Abedini, Amir Hakmadi, and Jason Rezaian, who were released. Um, there was a fourth person who no one had ever heard of, uh, uh, Nosratullah Khosravi Rudsari. No clue who this person is. Did not get on the plane to come back to the United States. Is staying in Iran, and everyone's just kind of mum like I don't I don't know who this person is. So that was a little strange. Uh, there's a man uh, named Namazi who is also still there. Uh, he's not part of the deal, but there is that other one American who was captured or detained recently. Uh, and then Robert Levinson, of course, the former CIA contractor and FBI agent who disappeared back in 2007. Uh, the Iranians have agreed to continue working with us to try and resolve his case, which is code for where he is. And I don't think anybody... Really I don't think they've seen proof of life in five years. They haven't years. seen proof of life in five years. I mean, people I have talked... Reports talk... that he's in Pakistan. Right, exactly. I mean, I've, I've talked to people in the administration about this, you know, recently, and they've said, you know, we believe the Iranians when the Iranians say we don't know where he is. So it, that's a heartbreaking case, too. So it did bring resolution to, you know, four people's cases, um, but there are some sort of weird uh, unresolved and some pretty painful unresolved aspects, too. But... Um, overall, it seems like a pretty positive deal. I think it's ha- reason to celebrate. Happy Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, ben, um, Twitter. Twitter's getting sued. Twitter is getting sued. Um, so uh, pardon me in advance for getting uh, down in some legal weeds on this one. A few months ago, um, one of Lawfare's student contributors, Zoe Bedell, and I wrote this article about the question of whether... Apple might face a lawsuit as a result of providing encryption services to uh, uh, terrorists or 
child pornographers or um, you know other real bad guys by victims of their offenses. Um, and um, this was a question that uh, Senator Whitehouse of Rhode Island had posed to the Attorney General, uh, Deputy Attorney General, in a congressional hearing, and she didn't know the answer. So we decided to kind of look into it, and we wrote uh, a couple of articles about uh, um, what you, what legal theories you might use to sue Apple as a victim of terrorism, uh, and we concluded that only one of them potentially had legs, um, and that was to sue them. Uh, at, under a, a weird law called the Anti-Terrorism Act um, as potential violators of the material support law. That is, by the allegation would be that by giving knowingly giving encryption services to terrorists, they had violated uh, this law and incurred civil liability in the course of doing so. Uh, this turns out to be exactly the legal theory that Twitter was sued under last week. Uh, the story has gotten a fair bit of press. A plaintiff's law firm in California has sued Twitter on behalf of a, the wife of a um, U.S. Uh, contractor who was killed in Jordan um, in an ISIS attack. And the, the complaint alleges that Twitter has knowingly provided uh, service to uh, terrorists, including ISIS, despite repeated warnings from the press, uh, the FBI, and law enforcement that these were being used in extremely dangerous ways. Um, and um, so on Lawfare last week, Zoe and I sort of did an analysis of this suit. We're going to do another one uh, about some possible uh, ISIS, uh, sorry, some p possible Twitter defenses. Um, but I think this is an area that is going to be interesting to watch over the next uh, couple of mo few months and years as uh, the as the plaintiff's bar confronts uh, major tech companies uh, over the provision of service to really, really bad guys. Um, short answer, uh, the companies have some very, very strong defenses. Um, but it is not an open and shut case, and there are circumstances that you can hypothesize. I'm not sure this suit is one of them, where uh, particularly a company like Twitter may have some real exposure. So I think this is incredibly interesting, especially sort of in light of the rising pressure on Silicon Valley right now. Um, not only do you have the Twitter lawsuit, um, Mark Warner says that he's looking to introduce legislation on encryption. Uh, you have sort of a high-level envoy, uh, Loretta Lynch, Dennis McDonough, Jim Comey, uh, James Clapper all went out last week to apparently a not super productive meeting. Yeah, I hear it didn't go that well. This is, this is the word. Um, and I think the Twitter lawsuit is really interesting to consider. Um, sort of the notion of, uh, as a society, we uh, have particular ideas about what responsible behavior looks like. Um, and those ideas are actually not determined by Tim Cook. They're determined collectively through a number of different interesting complementary mechanisms. Well, there is that Article 8 of the Constitution that designates Tim Cook's business interests True. as as a supreme over all other 
uh, articles of the Constitution. That was in the latest Terms of Service Agreement. Yeah. You didn't read yeah, that? And the government the actually I shouldn't just the click on these things. through without <laughs> noticing that it had amended the Constitution by doing so. <laughs> But, but this is interesting because it, it's yet another example of the often maligned plaintiff's bar um, recalibrating the legal universe for us. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see as tech companies confront not just the threat of, uh, of legislation, not just the, the risk of being seen cozying up to Jim Comey, but now uh, causes of action in, in federal court. Right. And so, look, it, it bears mention that, first of all, on the specific facts of the complaint at issue, Twitter has some very strong defenses. And there's a real problem with this uh, complaint, which is that the, you know, the plaintiffs allege that Twitter provided this service. They uh, allege that Twitter did so knowing how ISIS was using it. And they allege that... Uh, ISIS, in fact, exploited Twitter in, uh, in a number of important respects. What they do not allege is that there's any direct causation between Twitter's exploitation by ISIS and the specific attack, i.e., the attacker they do not allege was a Twitter user or had learned about ISIS on Isn't Twitter. Isn't kind of important in their case? I think it's, I think I think it's called it, a cause of action, yeah. a failure to state a cause well, of action. Well, yeah, I think, I think they have a real uh, proximate causation problem in the complaint. So it may be that this, this specific complaint is not the one that's going to push these issues. It is also the case that Twitter has a non-trivial argument that they are immune from suit altogether, uh, on grounds that there's a provision of law, it's two, uh, 47 U.S.C. 230, which actually immunizes carriers to the extent that the, the offending content is provided by a third party. So in other words, you know, if you post something on a, a bulletin board that's offensive or on uh, the bulletin board itself can't be held liable for hosting that. Um, and this is totally what they had in mind exactly. when they wrote that provision. Um, and so there's an interesting question as to whether Twitter and, and for that matter, Apple are immune altogether from this category of suit. In addition to that, there are some, I think, significant deficiencies with this specific complaint. That said, I think the plaintiff's bar is likely, as Susan says, to play a real role in this discussion that Congress is underestimating, the federal government, the, the executive branch is underestimating, and I think up until now, the tech companies have really underestimated. Do you think they've underestimated or just felt that they, to your earlier point, that they were immune from this? I mean, common sense would sort of say, like, look, we put the products out there. We can't control who uses them, and how could we possibly police the universe of our consumers uh, if we crack down on one, we have to crack down on all. Because that's the, not an argument that works for chainsaw manufacturers. It's, I mean, this is the basic Gun principle. manufacturers. So, right, but they have, they have um, a more ironclad statutory carve-out. What Ben's referring to, uh, 
I don't think was ever drafted with that, with this particular consequence in mind. The question is whether now retroactively there's a way to sort of shoehorn this in. Right. So the the other the other really interesting question, and and this is actually a subject that Zoe and I are working on a piece on now, is whether um, whether the material support law even depends on third-party content to operate in this context. So imagine that, for example, that Twitter had a promotion and it gave um, you know, you, the, certain users, the, in exchange for money, the ability to do promoted tweets, which it does, right? But now imagine that it has a promotion in which it gives you the ability to promote tweets for free. And it gave that to, say, al-Baghdadi. Um, and imagine for a minute that he used that to tweet cat photos, which is what most people seem to use Twitter to do. I know, I, I do. I think they still would have violated the material support law, even if he didn't use the Twitter account at all. Because he they could, knew it was al-Baghdadi and he's a terrorist and, and giving him communications You're devices. giving him something of value. Right. And the statute right. forbids giving something of value. It doesn't forbid giving something of value if the person then uses it to tweet things we don't like. And so I, I think these statutes are operate somewhat differently from the statutes that uh, companies have been held immune It'll be under. It'll be interesting to see whether... It'll be interesting for Twitter's defenses to argue that Twitter actually has no value whatsoever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, did not, we, yeah. we wasted their, their time. Their share price might confirm this. We, yeah. Is it, is it just, as a, as a, just a general point of law? It's the cat video defense. Yeah. As a general point of law, and I'm not some fancy lawyer, but is Ooh, there... I, you know, you, like you always, do play one. You, you always nice know when someone's about to make a profound legal point when they say, well, I'm not some fancy I'm not lawyer. Some fancy. I'm, I'm pulling my suspenders, as you can see right here. Um... Isn't there a difference here, though, in Twitter providing a service versus making it available? I mean, they would argue that, like, look, we didn't go out and, like, give this to al-Baghdadi. It's available, and he took it. So I think that's that's a potential defense. They made a service generally available, um, and uh, they don't control who takes advantage of, right. of the services they make available. Um, I think if you put that in a different context, uh, let's say you're somebody... Who um, gives uh, you know throws dollar bills into the street and has no control over who picks them up? Uh, it would be an interesting question if you knew when you were throwing dollar bills into the street that some of the people picking them up were were ISIS. Whether and particularly if you've been warned about that by the FBI. By the way, ISIS is picking up the dollars you're throwing into the street. Uh, is that is that a violation of but that statute but or not? But it's further than that. And the FBI had said, by the way, there's a way to throw dollar bills such that the ISIS uh, adherents would not pick up those dollar bills, or such that you could minimize the risks or uh, or take the dollar bill away after the fact. I mean, this really is not just... Uh, the question here is not, well, you know, little old us, we were just providing the service, how could we possibly have known? The... Uh, the activity at issue is the failure to remove the accounts whenever they were given all information and opportunity yeah. to do so. So, so or the failure to, to failure to remove them in such way as they were not easy to replicate. Right. You know, al-Baghdadi 1 gets removed and all of a sudden al-Baghdadi 2 shows up and then al-Baghdadi 3. Um, and so 
you know, it's not that Twitter's doing nothing. In fact, they cancel a lot of accounts, but the complaint alleges that they don't they don't do enough. Uh, they don't do enough. And this is where I think that you know Twitter. This is where I think they could get hit more in the public space and politically. And I mean, and, and probably they have room, as does YouTube, I presume, and Facebook and Google, to make some headway and look like they're doing something. Which is to say, look, we're going to create a whole new division. Now they have to have the free freedom of speech issue they keep running up against. But it seems to me that it's probably in their interest, and I would predict. They're going to do something very public to make it look like they're being much more aggressive about policing these uh, these users. Uh, okay, uh, Susan, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, so having a big week. He is getting the paddle uh, out, doling out the punishment this week Ash, over at the, the Pentagon. Punisher. Exactly. Um, so two reports out of the Pentagon this week. First, breaking story from our own Shane Harris. Who? Uh, uh, the Daily Beast. Yeah, he's not trustworthy. I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't rely mm-hmm. on that guy. Alleging uh, a that great writer, uh, but geez, the Secretary of Defense Ash Carter is considering uh, retroactively stripping David Petraeus of one of his stars. Petraeus is, of course, a four-star general, retired, um, amidst a scandal uh, while he was director of the CIA for sharing classified information with his biographer turned mistress. And did it while he was still in uniform. And did so while he was still in By three days. Um, The second story uh, is that Carter is also mulling over who and how to punish the individuals responsible for the uh, mistaken airstrike on a doctor's lab border border hospital. Um, So interesting what uh, B is in Carter's bonnet this week Mm -hmm. uh, and how he's going to go about... uh, making the decisions about who to punish, uh, especially, you know, obviously one is a slightly more serious uh, context than the other, uh, but but the way that punishment ends up being precedent and, and the way you use it to incent future behavior and, uh, and send a message to the troops. Uh, so I'm interested to hear uh, thoughts. Yeah. Stars? No stars? Well, what say you? You know, we've talked about we talked about Petraeus's plea bargain, I think, on the podcast last year, and I think we were all of the opinion at that time that um, he got a sweet deal. The um, fault was was in his stars. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, this is the as they say. <laughs> yeah. um, but this, you know, he pled guilty to giving eight notebooks that he had compiled while he was the commander of forces in Afghanistan that contained code word information, notes of conversations with the president, the names of covert agents. I believe the, uh, the, the line in the plea deal or the information was, this is code word classified stuff. stuff. <laughs> right, which he tells Paula Broadwell, his biographer, with whom he was having an extramarital affair, and then gives her the, you know, the, the information three days before he retires from the army. <clears throat> and, you know, it's, it's, I think it's inarguable that he got a very light sentence, two years probation, $100,000 fine, for things that for people of a lower rank and lower status would have landed them in prison. Right. In prison it's for a, a long fel- time. And the FBI I, I've, wanted to charge him on a felony. Everyone who has ever given me a code word classified <laughs> filled notebooks while having an affair with me has gotten a lot more time than Way that. more time. The prisons are filled with these people. Um, but to me, to your point, Susan, I mean, I think that I, I feel like that the message that Carter is trying to convey, they're, they're, you know, to the extent he's trying to convey something, but there's, there's two problems here. One is, you know, you, 
you can't necessarily let your senior military people get away with it just because they're famous or senior. And also, there is punishment being meted out for all kinds of related offenses to things, not necessarily classified information, but things like sexual indiscretion and misbehavior to lower level people all the time. And in with the Kunduz shooting, there's a real concern, I think, being expressed now, uh, you know, including by some lawmakers, that this cannot just stop at the sort of kernel level and not go further up the chain and look at who else was responsible. Um, there's even hangovers of this with Benghazi and people feeling that Petraeus and, and Leon Panetta should be held to greater account for what happened then. So, and to me, this is also about you know, sort of equal punishment throughout the ranks, regardless of, of you know, what your stars are, as much as it is about holding higher-level officers uh, to a standard. It seems like that's where he's coming from. So here's my question. Four stars, three stars, how big a deal of it oh. is it if you have, you know, you're out one star, uh, Yes. So I so think what? it's worth it's some one. I think it's worth some money. Which, it is worth some money. But he's you know. making a huge amount of money right. now. I mean, sure. yeah, that, that's that's he a could potentially pay about hundreds of thousands of dollars to be buying those, so he could he could <laughs> use the uh, the extra windfall. Um, you know, and it's um, this. I think. Look, I think there is a the best analogy I could come up with for somebody like David Petraeus losing his fourth star. It would be like going to, who was the last, like, really big gold medal winning gymnast or figure skater? Like, the last just absolute sensation American story. I don't remember the past Olympics. Nobody wants to admit. Ben has it on the tip of his tongue. Michael Phelps. Sure. Yeah, Michael Phelps. They're like, yeah, exactly. And stripping him retroactively of his gold medals. It's that kind of, like, this is a man who, first of all, there are only 12 generals in the Army at the four-star level at any one time. It's an extraordinary Which achievement. Which is, for, for people who have multiplication <clears throat> trouble, that's 48 stars. Right, it's 48 stars out there. Uh, it's like being, it's not, saying it's like being a CEO of a company almost doesn't capture it. It's like being a professional athlete. I mean, the entourage, the respect, the power these people have. And David Petraeus is a man who had set his sights on getting that star early in his career. For him to lose it, it would be, it would, it would wound and damage him, I think, on a personal level far greater than any, you know, money he'd have to pay back, which, you know, he's, he's making hand over fist. Right, and it's I, the shame of it. I also think that it's sort of, um, you know, it's an interesting uh, way to make him internalize sort of the cost of things because, look, a lot of people said, well, you know, he's, he's, he's uh, the service to his country, his record, he should sort of get off on, on that record alone. Um, I think this is sort of a way of telling him that the judgment he displayed here and the, the lack of judgment that he displayed um, is not fitting a four-star general, that, yeah. that it can't stand, that he he failed to live up to, uh, you know, the stars on his shoulder. Okay, so here's, here's my uh, quick question before we wrap up this segment. Who else should Ash Carter punish? I mean, he's on a roll now. He could theoretically punish Paula Broadwell. She's still a reservist. I mean, I don't know if, what authority he has over the reserves. I think he should but... go out to the Pentagon parking lot and start giving out traffic tickets. Ooh. And just... Just to random wrap people? Wrap it up. Just start punishing everyone in his Can I just, pack? like, give him a personal enemies list? Yeah, I think I think we should come up with... A, if, look, uh, if he ra- does have drones at his disposal. If rational security so. listeners have ideas about who Ash Carter should punish next, please tweet them at us. Um, yeah. 
and nice make, make your case for... for, for, for it's also available to give your children a stern talking. Right, or, or you know, <clears throat> if there's corporal punishment issues you need taken care of, Ash is the man. I'll let him deal with Bashar al-Assad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carrie, step Spank aside. that man. Carter's <laughs> coming in, baby. He is, he is pissed. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I'll go first. Um, uh, so I received in the mail yesterday, hot off the presses... It is the Korean version of my book, At War. Congratulations. Isn't that cool? I wish I knew how to say that in Korean. I do, too. It's interesting, though, the At War is still in English. The At War is still in English, as are things like SAIC and, like, Real-Time Regional Gateway and, like, Program and Company. Can you tell which of those uh, is Shane Harris? I'm not sure exactly which one. I think it's the first part. But a friend of mine who uh, speaks and reads some Korean, she's Korean-American, um, said that basically the first part is the Koreanization of your name. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, you know, it, it's basically the phonetic sounding name in Korean. So she's like, she said, she told me, she like, basically it's like, Shane Ni Su, like that. Like if you were saying it in Korean, that's mm-hmm. kind of the, what the characters would kind of come out to be. It's like, the, like what's the part at the end? You know, I hope it doesn't say like, you know, Major League Asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Shane Harris, noted fiction writer, <laughs> noted fabulist. Um, but that's pretty cool, yeah. I opened it up last night, and um, yeah, can't read a damn word of it, but I'm really pleased to, to have it it's out there. It'd be interesting if, it, if the text bore no relation to the text that Wouldn't you it? wrote. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so do you know like, you're the translator? Well, no. I mean, it, in the contracts, I mean, it spells out that they must do a faithful translation, but I haven't, like, fact-checked. I mean, for all I know, this is like a bootleg copy of some missing Harry <laughs> Potter book. I, I wish it worked. I would read that book. Well, I would, I would cash in on this book in a way that I didn't in the, in this, in the actual book. Then Harry Potter and the uh, and the at war. Yeah, it'd be like Harry Potter and the cyber guard. The cyber, the cyber. What's that? Guess the cyber cyclops. Har- I don't know. Har- I can read these books. You can tell. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I'm just sad. Alan Rickman is dead. Oh, anyway. Although not Judy Dench again. Yes, Correct Judy Dench. International security that Judy Dench is alive. Hasn't and this well. woman been through enough? Excellent. Um, Susan, would you like to show your object? So my uh, object lesson is um, the book Ashley's War, uh, which I attended a uh, Hoover book soiree for yesterday evening. Um, Ashley's War is a pretty remarkable story about Ashley White and um, a group of women who served um, alongside special operations forces in Iraq and Afghanistan in um, so-called cultural support uh, teams. Um, what they actually they they were actually sort of the precursors to um, to the integration of services. Um, and the stories that this book contains are just of. Uh, superhuman feats and really um, in- remarkable American soldiers. It's a war story. Um, and I was looking around at the book event last night. Um, these events are, are very uh, well attended um, and ordinarily are packed to the brim with every white male DC's national security community has to offer. And I was struck that there were mostly only women there. Um, and I was struck because this is, this is a war book. This is, this is national security. Hmm. This is, um, this is pretty remarkable stuff. And I, uh, I thought it was interesting, um, and a little bit unfortunate to see, uh, 
that men apparently are not interested in uh, lady soldiers, mm. even though I'm pretty sure that those lady soldiers could uh, kill most of them. As as the person who conducted the interview at this um, event, to be podcast um, on the Lawfare podcast. Yes, and and for oh. those for those particularly males who missed it, uh, you will have a chance to redeem yourself by listening to the podcast. Um, but I have to say, I very much agree with Susan. It was uh, a really interesting um, effect how gender uh, gender reversed the audience was. And part of that was that a, a bunch of women came for an event that I suspect they wouldn't have come for our normal events. Um, but some of that was that a lot of uh, men seemed uninterested in uh, a book called Ashley's War, uh, even when it's a book about you know special forces direct action, it just happens to involve the women involved in it. And I, I think a lot of people subconsciously uh, didn't find that very interesting. Hmm. Um, and I, I agree with Susan. It, it, it's, it was disappointing. Also not there last night, Shane Harris. What, I was actually someplace else where there were many men and women in attendance. And, uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and Shane uh -huh. actually uh -huh. has never come to any of the Hoover Book soirees. What, what, what are they being called? Put him on Ash Carter's no. punishment list. <laughs> yes. What? My, what? my um, suggestion. Shane Wait a Harris is unacceptable is, social no, calendar. This is, no, 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 no. I'm the host here. We don't do this. Share <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. your damn object, Ben. <laughs> So we have a sponsor again this week. Um, last week, you'll remember that we were sponsored by uh, the makers of the Putin-inspired cologne. Uh, this week, uh, Etsy, the online crafts manufacturer, <laughs> is sponsoring us because sure they, they are. are the. Uh, uh, it is only on Etsy that you can buy the. And I swear, I'm not making this up. The Putin scented candle, 16 ounce <laughs> soy candle that smells uh, uh, like Vladimir Putin for $18.50. Uh, the description reads as follows, which I'm going to try to do without laughing. <laughs> have you ever wished that there were a way to capture the scent of Vladimir Putin so you could have the. You <laughs> can't get through it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this. Because the answer is yes, of course. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the okay. description. All right, oh, Susan's gonna read this. Have you ever wished that there was a way to capture the scent of Vladimir Putin so you could have the pleasure of smelling him whenever you wanted? The Putin scented candle combines notes of pine, earth, and smoke billowing from the cities of your enemies. It's a manly fragrance designed to evoke the essence of Vladimir Putin and eliminate the smell of political dissidence from your home. Um, I like it. I would, I would want to smell that. I, I would just like to have Putin in a jar. I, I, think, I think if other people have Vladimir Putin-inspired products, that can uh, sponsor the Rational Security Podcast. I think that we could go a long way with this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Soy candles with a we small sure amount of radioactive material. Oh, I like <laughs> exactly. That. Ben, when, when you fight Vladimir Putin, which we should say for the record, he still not, has not accepted. He has still not, has not answered. I even have an injured shoulder right now. And so this, oh, you know, if the Kremlin Putin, were, were on the ball, chance. this would be the chance. 
We can have like the ring can be lined with the Vladimir Putin candles. Yeah, uh, we will. We, we will buy Vladimir Putin scented candles uh, for everybody who attends the fight. Oh I bet God. if we looked, we could find a collector, a non-ironic collector of Vladimir Putin memorabilia. Memorabilia. Oh, there have to be some in Russia, right? I mean, there have to be some. I mean, I saw a woman the other day who collects, like, plastic sushi. Certainly, like, little Japanese plastic sushi things. Certainly there's somebody collecting Putin memorabilia. I, I actually, honestly, I could get into that yeah. project. You know? I think you're going to become that collector. I, I might. I, I think this obsession with Vladimir Putin might give way to just, like, shelves and shelves in your house of Putin candles, Putin dolls. <laughs> Putin. <laughs> I'm thinking about Putin, it. Putin themed musical. The instruments. image that they've selected is um, is a particularly for the for the cover <laughs> of the candle is really sort of um, a real display kind of, of the Soviet style. Should we call it doughy masculinity? There's yeah. something oh. kind of. Uh, oh, even on the cover cover. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. So buy your buy your Putin scented candles oh from our sponsor mm-hmm. Etsy. Etsy. Thanks, thanks Etsy for enriching all of our lives. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can get links to our past shows in our archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Please remember, whenever you download the podcast, to leave us a review, preferably a good review, uh, and comments as well. And keep tweeting at us. We'd love to hear from you. The podcast is edited by Jen Howell. The music was performed this week by Ash Carter and the Star Destroyers. I like that. You like that? I don't, I don't get I the was Star gonna say Star Strippers. Oh, Star Strip. Ah, Star Destroyers. I was gonna say Star oh. Strippers, but Destroyer has more of that crushing. Yeah. 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 Star Destroyer. I like that. That's good. You like that? Yeah. It was better than last week. Yeah, last week you were down on, fell down on the job. That last was week. Deep Blue something. Deep Blue. Oh God. <laughs> People know nothing of your '90s pop music culture. It's lost. It's wasted on you. Um, no, of course. Our music is performed, as always, by the lovely Sophia Yan, um, who has no stars on her shoulders, but is a star to us. She is a star to us. She is a star to us. A four-star in our hearts. In our hearts. Give her a fifth star, just like Eisenhower. Let's start a campaign for that. Okay. Well, we give her David Petraeus a star. Yep. Every star that gets taken away from David Petraeus goes to Sophia. Gets to Sophia. Excellent. Uh, we'll update you on the progress of that campaign next week. <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of my friend Susan Hennessy, thank you for joining us this thank week. And Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.